This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to the new season of Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust. I'm Dougal Stevenson. This time, Bill Southworth will take you back to the Second World War and show how it affected people living in Otago. I look at the history of Sir Ernest Shackleton's supply ship Aurora and its connection with Port Chalmers. And Gregor Campbell looks at an early proposal to link Lakes Wanaka and Hawea with a hydroelectric scheme. World War II was experienced in Otago with a combination of fear and frustration. Fear for loved ones fighting overseas, and fear as to what would happen if the Japanese reached New Zealand. The frustration came from wartime shutdowns, the absence of silk stockings and food rationing. Bill Southworth has been looking at the way people nevertheless pitched in to form what became known as the Home Front. In 1939... Just after Britain had declared war, radio listeners here heard a message from the Prime Minister that they had been dreading. We arrange ourselves without fear beside Britain. Where she goes, we go. Where she stands, we stand. We are only a small and young nation, but we are one and all a band of brothers. That was Prime Minister Michael Joseph Savage telling the nation that New Zealand had declared war against Hitler's Nazi Germany. Savage, who had been operated on for bowel cancer, would die six months later and be replaced as Prime Minister by Peter Fraser. Mel McCulloch, who was a schoolgirl at Mosgill District High School at the time, recalls. I remember the day war was declared. My mother was listening to a speech on the radio and with tears in her eyes and a sad voice she said... Oh, we're at war. In June 1942, my 16-year-old sister died from cancer, which had been diagnosed six months before. I turned 14 a few days later, and through the awful grief, could then relate to others who lost their sons and brothers. The lists in the Otago Daily Times in black ink are still remembered. Grey days indeed. Buckling down to the reality of another world war, only 20 years after the last one, can't have been easy. Citizens had to pluck up their courage and their determination to win. Sandbags had to be filled, gun emplacements built, trenches dug, and blackout curtains put up. In the first year of the war, four ships were sunk by German submarines off the New Zealand coast as the enemy tried to stop food being sent to Britain. Fifty of the ship's crews died. The government set up an emergency precaution scheme which in Dunedin involved the city council. Thora Simpson, who was a shorthand typist with the council engineer's office at the time, remembers. They used to meet quite regularly and discuss what was needed and what was to be done in the event of the Japanese invasion. My job was to go to these meetings and sit beside the deputy town clerk and take shorthand notes of the meeting. It was very interesting, and they discussed, among other things, the scorched earth policy, as they called it which in the event of an invasion meant that as you retreated, you blew up roads, bridges, crops and anything that would impede the advance of the enemy. Although New Zealand was never invaded, the authorities couldn't assume that it wouldn't be, so the country prepared to defend itself. Men who were too old to fight 
although many were veterans of the First World War, or were not allowed to enlist because they worked for what was deemed essential services like farming, freezing works or wharves, joined up in the Home Guard. Although this was much more than just a dad's army, no one believed it would be able to stop an invasion. Carol Meikle, whose father was a Clutha County engineer, remembers the Home Guard. Dad joined the Home Guard. He spent quite a number of weekends away training at Kaka Point where they sorted out ideas for survival should New Zealand be unfortunate enough to be taken over. The threat became increasingly real when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbour and extended their hold over the Pacific. After he died, I was cleaning out the top drawer of his desk and found a few precious letters. One of them was from his friend and colleague who wrote during his camp training before leaving New Zealand. He'd never returned and left a young widow with no family. Two of my school friends lost their fathers. Our parents talked often of friends and relatives who didn't return. Large, round concrete pipes were placed around every available sports ground, the Oval, the North Ground, the Market Reserve and others. They were to be shelters for air raids. Strict regulations came in. When the air raid sirens sounded, all street lighting was turned off and all house lights had to be blacked out. Wardens patrolled the streets to make sure people were complying. Some people adjusted to the new way of living easily. Thora Simpson, who was living in the central Dunedin boarding house, took the necessary city blackouts in a relaxed way. I didn't take a great deal of notice, but the curtains were probably a calico type. They used to hang quite nicely. They had other curtains up, so the landlady must have put these on a curtain wire of some sort. You put them up at dusk, but probably didn't worry so much, except perhaps if there was an air raid siren warning, and then everybody would make sure they were in place. Even people's calorie intake had to change. Rationing was introduced, so that more food could be sent to help wartime Britain. Rationing began early in the war, and people were issued with ration books containing a limited number of coupons. The coupon had to be used when certain things were purchased. If you were living in an institution, such as a hall of residence or a nurse's home, you had to hand your coupons over to the kitchen staff. At the beginning of the war, you could buy up to 54 litres of petrol a month, but by 1942, this had been cut back to only 9 litres a month. People switched to buying bicycles, but soon these too became hard to buy. After the Japanese invaded Malaya and Indonesia, which supplied most of the world's rubber, tyres became precious and were saved for government and priority use. They became almost impossible for private car owners to buy. People travelled less and saved up coupons for special trips. Food scarcity led to long queues outside shops. People were allowed half a pound of butter a month and by the end of the war, meat was rationed too. It was down to a kilogram a week much less than the meat-eating public of the day were used to. Bacon and ham were not included in that kilogram, but they were also rationed to 85 grams a week. The sugar ration was one and a half cups a week, and for tea it was two ounces per person. Even vegetables became harder to get after the country had to supply them to thousands of American marines fighting in the Pacific. A Dig for Victory campaign was started, and those who didn't already have veggie gardens started them. Carol Meikle remembers how food and even clothing was rationed. Food rationing meant mum had a ration book for each child, 
and when the grocer rang the back doorbell, we would go with Mum to watch her tear our grey ration stamps. Vegetables and meat were delivered to the back door. The Coleman was a more threatening caller, with his face and hands blackened with coal dust. He carried his load on his leather vest. Material and wool were also rationed. Our beds were covered with patchwork quilts made from old coats and suits. Neighbours had curtains made from sugar sack hessian bordered with cotton print. Many of our clothes were cut down. Jerseys were knitted from unravelled wool. At the end of the war, the towns of Otago all celebrated with bands and parades. But there were mixed feelings. Mervyn Palmer was a schoolboy at Otago Boys High at the time. In Dunedin, the celebrations of victory in Europe and later in the Pacific served to confirm what I had always arrogantly taken for granted. We would win in the end because Mr Churchill said we would. However, a postscript was to be added close upon the celebrations. The secondary schools arranged for their students at all levels to see the films showing Allied forces entering the Nazi concentration camps in Europe. That took the shine off the romance and taught me in one lesson that in war there are no winners. In Belclutho, Carol Meikle later reflected on the lessons the war had taught her. Ours was a sheltered war. It took many years to get a more complete picture. Anzac Day services at the town monument were an annual reminder. Our war years taught us to be careful with what we had and to be innovative and to recycle things. The examples of our parents and grandparents gave us an assurance that it's possible to cope with difficult and stressful times. Thankfully, war has not been so dominant in our later lives. In preparing this piece, I'm grateful to Alison Parr for her book, Home, Civilian New Zealanders Remember the Second World War, and also to Isabel Veach and Mervyn Palmer for their book, Growing Up in Wartime. The voices you heard were from Judy Southworth and Sarah Gallagher. This is Bill Southworth reporting. Sir Ernest Shackleton was a major figure in the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. What's not so well known about him is that one of his ships had to be repaired here at Port Chalmers. Their explorations, adventures, their courage, doggedness, foolhardiness continues to stimulate imaginations and excite curiosity and compel informed and speculative analysis. There are books, journals, logs, photographs, remnants, bones, and now there's technology with which lost ships are found. What may be James Cook's endeavour, renamed, repurposed and ignominiously scuttled, apparently lies off Rhode Island. The two ships of Sir John Franklin's ill-fated expedition to find a northwest passage from the Atlantic to the Pacific, having previously sailed under Sir John Ross to Antarctica, the Erebus and the Terror, have been found below the northern ice more than 160 years after they were abandoned. And lately, Ernest Shackleton's ship, has been discovered in remarkable condition on the bottom, so close to the last position her master, navigator captain, Frank Worsley, recorded as the endurance sank. Subsequently, the survival of crew and expedition members has become part of Antarctic exploration folklore. The struggle to reach Elephant Island and then the remarkable voyage of the little craft that James cared to South Georgia, regarded as one of the finest feats of navigation ever. The Endurance was not Shackleton's only vessel. 
When he embarked on the transcontinental Antarctic expedition, another ship was necessary to lay food depots and sustain the expedition to the Ross Sea. That ship was the Aurora, built as an Arctic sealer, and which Douglas Mawson had fitted for his Australasian Antarctic expedition of 1911. Moored at Cape Evans, Scott's Terra Nova headquarters, in May 1915, hawsers broke in a blizzard, and wrenched from its moorings, the Aurora drifted helplessly, leaving the depot party ashore to fend for themselves. It would be a long drift and a severely damaged ship without radio contact before they were free of the ice. By March 1916, a makeshift rudder was in place, and the Aurora struggled north until radio contact was made with Bluff, and Captain Stenhouse reluctantly called for help. Prime Minister William Massey requested that the Otago Harbour Board's tug, the Stevenson and Cook-built Dunedin, meet the Aurora, which was then not far from the Snares Islands, and tow her to Port Chalmers. Port Chalmers Engineering Works Stevenson and Cook had built the tug Dunedin, though it was not of their design, and the tug had suffered several embarrassing mechanical problems. The 140-mile tow was a considerable achievement. Some excerpts from an excited Otago Witness newspaper of the 5th of April, 1916. The steam yacht Aurora, with Captain Stenhouse and party on board, reached Port Chalmers on Monday morning, and mariners generally agree in the opinion that the vessel was fortunate in making port in her somewhat distressed condition. Owing to the severe nip she sustained in the southern seas, her hull was strained, and she's taking in seven feet of water a day, a state of things that calls for the continual use of the pumps to keep the water down. The loss of her rudder was also a serious menace to her safety. She has come through it, however, and is now moored alongside the export pier at Port Chalmers, from which she will be shifted in a day or two to the small dock for repairs. The vessel reached the heads on Monday morning at half-past five and remained outside until half-past eight when she came in with the assistance of the Otago Harbour Board's tug Dunedin. At the signal station, she was greeted with, New Zealand welcomes you, the cheering words being conveyed by means of flags. When the tug with her charge and tow entered the channel which gives access to the harbour, the mayor of Port Chalmers, Mr Scully, met the vessel by launch and hauling alongside welcomed Captain Stenhouse and his crew. Captain Stenhouse acknowledged the greeting from Port Chalmers and New Zealand generally, stating that he had been impressed, even before his actual arrival, with the fine spirit of helpfulness which seemed to animate the people of New Zealand. The party taken down the harbour on the plucky, the tug plucky, extended a welcome to the vessel when she was off the Maori Kike. And when the party met the ship, hearty cheers were raised by way of welcome, and someone on the Aurora called for three cheers for Port Chalmers which were lustily given. The deckhands also gave cheers for the Otago Harbour Board, and the wag of among them got good support when he called for cheers for the provisions of New Zealand. This was a gentle allusion to the fact that the homely fare sent down by the tug Dunedin had been appreciated by them after living for some weeks on tough seal. The Aurora, registered at Liverpool, is a three-masted steam yacht and in her present condition has much of the appearance of a Dundee whaler. Her heavy timbers give one an impression of the great strength and solidity which are required to withstand the terrific pressure of the ice. Needless to say, a great deal of interest centred in the jury rudder, which has figured largely in the cablegrams, but much more largely in the fortunes of the explorers themselves. 
Though of a type not unfamiliar with seafaring men, it is a highly ingenious contrivance and is thoroughly serviceable. In fact, its efficiency so impressed Pilot MacDougall as to cause him to declare that beyond a doubt the vessel could have negotiated the somewhat tortuous channel of the lower harbour with no other assistance than could be obtained from this crude-looking device. The whole contrivance is firmly bound to the stern of the vessel, and it's also attached to one of the derricks on the mizzenmast so that it can be raised out of the water when in danger of suffering damage from a heavy sea. Shortly after passing the kike, the tug Plucky went alongside the Aurora, and a bundle of copies of the Otago Daily Times was sent on board to give the men the latest news from the seat of war and elsewhere. Pilot MacDougall introduced Captain Stenhouse, commander of the Aurora, to Mr. Dixon, chairman of the harbour board. The commander at once apologised for not being in a position to invite everybody on board his vessel. I'm sorry. I can't ask you to come on board, he said, but you understand the position. And everybody, remembering the sacred rights of copyright, answered in chorus, Yes, yes. This put the genial captain at ease, and he added, I hope you'll come on board afterwards. Mr. Dixon welcomed the captain and crew to Port Chalmers. I desire, he said, to extend to you a very hearty welcome to the shores of New Zealand. We recognize the splendid work you have been doing in the interests of science and to give us the knowledge of the great unknown land in the South. Applause. While we can appreciate to some extent what you have done in that way, I am sure our imagination fails us when we attempt to realize the trying times you've had for the last year or so. We feel sure the expedition has been undertaken in the spirit of previous expeditions, in a spirit characteristic of the race, and that you were determined to see it through successfully. Applause. Our fervent wish is that it will reach a successful termination, and that later on you'll be enabled to sail again, and that you'll return to us with Sir Ernest Shackleton and the whole of his party. And when you do so, we'll be more than pleased to repeat the welcome we're extending to you today. So reported the Otago witness on the day. Nobody, not the chairman of the harbour board nor the captain of the Aurora, could have known that the endurance had sunk and Shackleton and his men were drifting with the pack ice in endless monotony on the edge of the Weddell Sea. The Tug Dunedin shipbuilder Stevenson and Cook's proprietor Isaac Stevenson was extremely proud of Port Chalmers' reputation as the Clyde of the South, but his company's expertise was in iron and steel, whereas the Aurora was built of oak, and so was repaired at wooden boat experts Millers in Port Chalmers, later to become Miller and Tonnage. The Aurora would make one last voyage to Antarctica with Ernest Shackleton on board, keeping his promise to bring back the stranded Ross Sea Party. Seven of the ten men had survived, barely. One who died was the Reverend Arnold Spencer Smith. The Padre had succumbed to scurvy. More of his story in a later programme. The Aurora sailed only after protracted negotiations, various human resentments, political indifference and prejudices had obstructed and impeded progress. There was the cost and the money to be raised, and there was a war on. Later, to keep his word and help pay off debts, Shackleton sold the Aurora to Pacific traders. In June 1917, Aurora sailed from Newcastle, Australia, bound for Chile with a load of coal. She was never seen again. Thanks to the Otago Witness, the Otago Daily Times and the Australian Government's Antarctic Division. 
The plan to increase the size of Lake Onslow and release its water down to the Roxburgh Dam during dry periods is not the first unusual hydro scheme proposed for Otago. Gregor Campbell has been looking at an early plan to link the lakes of Wanaka and Hawea. It was a dramatic statement, a proposal that, if taken up, would have provided 30 times as much power as was then used in the whole of New Zealand, as much energy as was then used in the United Kingdom. It was not nuclear energy. The year was 1904, and the Minister of Works, Mr Hall-Jones, was talking about hydroelectricity. Hydropower would replace gas and kerosene for lighting. It would power the railways. It would make New Zealand the manufacturing centre of the Pacific. One of the main proposals offered by the Minister was to use the altitude difference between Lake Hawea and Lake Wanaka to generate power. This would be at the neck, that narrow piece of land over which the Haast Highway crosses on its way to Haast Pass. There is a 65 metre difference in altitude there and only two kilometres of distance to tunnel through. The electricity generated there would make its way to Dunedin to power the entire city while also powering the towns along the way. For rural Otago, it would be revolutionary. So, why is there no historic powerhouse beside the Haast Highway? The reason, as usual, was money. There was none to spare in 1904, and none when the Hawea Wanaka proposal next surfaced in 1912. Then, of course, there was a war, after which there was no money. It also seems, from reading the reports of the time, that loss of power and transmission was not accounted for. Instead of central government making the investment, local bodies eventually formed power boards to exploit hydropower sources closer to markets. The Teviot board used the storage dam at Lake Onslow, originally built for gold mining. The Queenstown Cromwell district built at Roaring Meg. And Dunedin, after an attempt to send the water of Lee stream through a tunnel was thwarted by hard rock and rising cost, invested in the Waipori scheme, managing to obtain an act of parliament to give it the right to cover the town of Waipori with the waters of Lake Mahanarangi. The Hawea Wanaka scheme was not forgotten. My father told me about it in the 1970s. In 1912, it was proposed again, including the ability at times of heavy rainfall making cheaper hydropower, to pump water up from Wanaka to Hawea to prevent flooding at Wanaka Town. A member of the Lake Wanaka Guardians, set up after the successful campaign to prevent the raising of Lake Manapori, was doubtful, citing the so far unspoiled status of the lake. The question of what Hawea people thought of more water in the lake during times of flood was, it seems, not asked. The last word of the story I would like to give to that poet of varying talent, Angus Cameron Robertson, who, writing at the height or perhaps depth of the Great Depression, described the glittering future of Otago having harnessed the mighty Clutha River. As already indicated, if such a body of water as the Teviot River is capable of generating such power as it certainly does, can the imagination of the reader portray what shall happen when the River Molyneux is harnessed up on the American principle? From Cromwell to Port Molyneux, powerful pumps shall be worked by power generated from the river. Elevated dams shall be filled with millions of tons of water. The mountainside as well as the plain shall be worked. The Molyneux shall become the Garden of New Zealand. And powerful spray force pumps shall have jets of sparkling waters 
right over the summits of the mountains. Every foot of land shall be cultivated. Wasteland shall be planted in trees. Tramways shall run to the summit of Mount Benger, and people in the coming city of Roxburgh shall have their summer lodges in the summit of Mount Benger. The river shall be full of salmon and trout. Deer and other game shall abound in the mountain forest. Roxburgh shall become a great seat of culture and learning. In other parts of the world, it shall be said of refined and cultured Roxburgh young men and young women, that refined and scholarly person is a graduate of Roxburgh University. As a natural sanatorium, Roxburgh shall assuredly become worldwide famous. Its young men and women shall become distinguished abroad on account of their good physique, their manly qualities, the women by their womanly charm and beauty. They shall be known as the Roxburgh Peaches, the Dumbarton Apricots, and women from Coal Creek shall be referred to as the Coal Creek Roses. And I am the thorn between Gregor Campbell. The award-winning Heritage Matters will run at new times this season. Look for it at 9.30am on the first Monday of the month, then during that week on Thursday at 1pm and Sunday at 7pm, and it'll be repeated at those times in the third week of each month. Or you can listen to it as a podcast on the Otago Access Radio website at oar.org.nz. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.